Hello, and welcome to Insights, a podcast from Understanding Society, the study that captures life in the UK in the 21st century. Understanding Society is a longitudinal survey. Every year, we ask each member of thousands of the same households across the UK about different aspects of their life. In each episode of this series, we're exploring how our data has been used in a key area. We'll look at what we found, what it tells us, and what we can learn from it. I'm your host, Chris Coates, and in this episode, we're looking at romance fraud, where people are deceived for financial gain by someone they thought they were in a relationship with. Here to discuss this are Dr. David Wilkill, a lecturer in quantitative criminology at the University of Manchester, Roisin Ryan Flood, Professor of Sociology and Director of the Centre for Intimate and Sexual Citizenship at the University of Essex, and David Gillis, Prevent and Protect Fraud Officer for Essex Police. David Wilhill, if I could start with you, we've seen some high-profile examples of romance fraud in the last year with things like the Tinder swindler on Netflix. Can you give us a quick definition of what this crime involves? If we wanted to define romance fraud in simple terms, we would just say that it refers to situations where an individual is deceived for financial gain by someone with whom the victim perceives to be in a romantic relationship. It is often a cyber-enabled crime, so someone approach you online with the ideal profile and someone that you have always wanted to date in the past, and then you establish an online conversation that may take days or may take weeks or even months up until the point where the offender that at that point you believe you are in a romantic relationship with start asking for small amounts of money. It can be to get a visa and come visit you in your country. It can be to hire the roaming service while he or she is visiting you in the future. It can be related to an emergency situation that the person is dealing with and they need you to assist them for a variety of reasons. And then once this first money transfer that we call the string has happened, then the gates of hell open. And this person keeps asking for more and more money. And sooner than you realize, you have already sent like huge amounts of money. You don't want to believe that this is happening to you, but it was all part of a scam. This person never really existed. This was just someone else using fake images online and you have already lost lost a lot of money. This type of crime is very difficult to investigate because the offender is often based in third countries where collaboration across police forces is not always ideal. And even if it was ideal, it would be very, very difficult to find the offender and prosecute. So yeah, what led you to this bit of research? I had been involved alongside other colleagues from different parts of the UK in a set of papers analyzing changes in crime during the COVID-19 pandemic. There was this overall narrative that crime would tend to decrease because people would be confined at home, especially during COVID-19 lockdowns, the first one and the second. And then we were arguing that not all crimes were decreasing, right? Like those crimes that happen online, both cyber-enabled and cyber-dependent, were likely to see an increase. People were spending more time at home. People were connected to the internet 24-7 for all purposes, work, but also socialization, leisure, and so on and so forth. So therefore, the amount of online targets was increasing. We published a couple of papers along those lines, arguing that not all crime was decreasing. We were also seeing some types of crime that were going up. And then we saw that one specific type of cyber-enabled fraud 
which is Roman's fraud, was increasing very, very much. I must say that we were using police-recorded crime statistics that we know are affected by other issues such as reporting inconsistencies and recording practices and so on. But we saw in official records that Roman's fraud was increasing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Was it already increasing before the pandemic began? Yes, we had seen huge increases and we have data recorded, at least in open access. We know that action fraud in the UK has been recording data even before that, but we got access to data through a freedom of information request between 2014 and 2020. And year after year, we have seen increases in this type of offense. We also see some seasonal patterns in which we see an increase in this type of offenses through Christmas, for example, when probably people feel more lonely. But overall, yes, we are seeing a steady increase year after year in Romans fraud. But the increase we saw after the first lockdown in 2019 and 2020 was way above any increase we had seen in the past. So it's true that we have seen a steady increase throughout the years, but after the first lockdown, it increased in an unprecedented way, we can say. So just looking at your paper, can you tell us a bit about which groups of people were most affected? So the first thing we need to say is that we need to be very careful when we talk about statistics related to victims, because it may look like we are saying some victims are more important than others, or some victims suffer more than others. So all victims are equally victims, or victims are equally suffering the consequences of being targeted by fraudsters. And we don't have a clear profile related to this type of victimization. So we have across age groups, across genders, across population groups in relation to income and ethnicity, we have victims from all types. It is true, however, that the majority of reports we have seen come from middle-aged females that are more often targeted than other population groups. We saw, however, during the COVID-19 pandemic that this increase in, in reports was mostly suffered by very young victims between 19 and 29 year olds. It's true, however, that we saw increases for all population groups. It related to age and related to sex, but the highest increases were related to younger victims. We also saw that even victims above 70 years old were also increasingly being targeted by these types of incidents. So for instance, between November and December 2020 only, we have more than 100 victims aged 70 to 79 across the UK. And just for some context, also between November and December 2020, in total, we had more than 1,200 reports of romance fraud to action fraud and to police forces that then directed these reports to Action Fraud, which is the National Cybercrime and Fraud Reporting Center here in the UK. And that younger age group, am I right in thinking that they were the ones who saw the greatest increase in loneliness as well? Yes. We could access survey data from understanding society to know if different population groups had suffered an increase in loneliness and also were more connected to the internet than before COVID than other population groups, right? We saw immediately then younger people, younger residents, were indeed suffering an increase in loneliness. We did not see, according to this survey data, an increase in loneliness among older adults. This only refers to the first few months after the first lockdown, so it may be that this changed later on, we don't know. However, what we did see 
is that older adults, especially those aged above six, 70, were using the internet way more often than before the pandemic. So we can say, or we argue, we can say that there was an increase in internet use by older adults and an increase in loneliness by younger adults. So we need to be very careful, for instance, when we say that the increase in romance fraud victimization by older adults is only due to an increase in loneliness during COVID-19 because we don't know that. So we were just, we were trying to challenge some of the main narratives that were being shown in the media that were solely associating romance fraud victimization with loneliness. We argue loneliness can play an important role, but most importantly, the internet use was what increased the frequency of this type of incidents during the pandemic. More people were connected to the internet. There were more likely targets of crime. And even if there was no increase in offenders, one offender was likely to target many more victims simultaneously because everyone was connected to the internet throughout those months. That's really interesting. David Gillies, can I bring you in there? Because you've obviously, you work for Essex Police dealing with this kind of fraud. Can you talk to us a little bit about the effect this has on victims, the things that they are feeling as a result of this crime? Yeah, I am the uh, Fraud Prevent and Protect Officer for Essex Police. And part of that is actually looking at this type of victimisation. Nationally, yes, there was a huge increase. And figures gathered from action fraud over the COVID sort of lockdown period showed us an increase of sort of upwards of 30%. So year on year, it rose by over 9,000 victims. And again, reported losses from that were nearly 100 million. Not every victim loses a large amount of money, but they're all, again, victims in themselves. So we've got to stress that these figures are based solely on reporting to action fraud. We believe that only a fifth of all crimes are actually reported to action fraud or indeed the police. So the true cost of crime is likely to be much higher than that. Undoubtedly, the pandemic resulted in an increase in loneliness. And I think it was that seeking of human contact on the internet and not having that social interaction that people had before undoubtedly led to the increase. And this is where we rely on research, such as David's research, for actually something that we feel that we do know, but actually the research tells us this and puts it on the bones, because evidence of that is actually quite difficult. So it was only from this research and questionnaires from other police forces that sort of indicated this to be the case, especially where the fraudsters are very good at using and tailoring their narratives to the COVID-19. And so the things that would normally flag up as suspicious appeared to be more plausible over that period, like the inability to meet due to travel restrictions or that the fraudster needed funds. So we suspect, you know, that many of these approaches by fraudsters over this period have yet to realise that their victims have actually romance fraud. So we don't think that the full impact of COVID is actually sort of um, as yet to be seen. Romance fraud can take a number of weeks, months, even years to come to the forefront. Right. And so can you take us through 
just quickly a little bit about the psychological effects on the victims, uh, people tending to blame themselves when this kind of thing happens. It is one of those things at the minute. I run a romance fraud peer support group with victim support in Essex. We are only one of two or three forces that run this. So weekly, I chat to victims of romance fraud. Psychologically, they it is still seen as the embarrassment. It is still seen as shame. A lot of the victims will not report to family and friends. It is still seen as that hidden sort of victim because they will not sort of come forward and they do feel a lot of shame and embarrassment over being caught out, which is a narrative that we're trying to actually overcome. If we go back a good few years, there was a different attitude to domestic violence than there is actually today. And I see that romance fraud sits in that sort of narrative that there is work to be done, there is work to recognise that these people are not stupid people. People say, well, how could you have fallen for that? How could you have been so stupid to give all your money away? We're talking about people's emotions. We're talking about that belonging that loneliness, that wanted to be accepted. So we need to sort of change society's perception of actually romance fraud. Roisin, can I come to you now? You've written about shame in your work, which is uh, really interesting. And I wondered if that was something you could talk about in relation to this and maybe talk about more generally in society. Sure, it's a great question. Um, I've done research on online dating more broadly And we know that online dating, although it's become very mainstream and many, many people do it, there still can be a slight stigma attached. And I think this is partly because it involves people kind of putting themselves out there and admitting that they are, in fact, looking for a relationship. And to some extent, that can feel very, you know, vulnerable and exposing. And I also think there is still a lot of stigma attached to being single in a world of what we call in sociological terms, compulsory coupledom. And so that can make it difficult for someone to admit that they would, in fact, prefer perhaps to be in a relationship. And in relation to online romance fraud, I think, as David just pointed out, there's a huge shame attached to being exploited in this way. And in popular culture, we see very negative images of people who experience online romance fraud. But I think that we really need to see a shift in how these victims are viewed and understand that they are victims of very sophisticated online grooming and also domestic abuse. So I'd really like to see that kind of shift in how we perceive victims of this crime so that they don't internalize enormous senses of shame around this. So rather than being dismissed as foolish or gullible, there should be much more understanding about how possible it is, unfortunately, to be exploited in this way. That's a very thought-provoking answer. A lot of the talk about this brings home the empathy that I think uh, we all need to have a bit more with crime victims in general, I suppose. Your centre at Essex, you have a journal, Sexualities, and you've published research on how COVID is and is not changing the way we talk about sex and dating. And I just wondered if you could give us a bit of perspective on what the last couple of years have meant in terms of intimate relationships generally? Yeah, uh, that's a really big question. (laughs) You know, this is something that has come up in terms of, you know, the impact of COVID on intimate life more generally. 
And of course, one of the things we know is that due to successive lockdowns, there are long periods of time where meeting someone, meeting a potential partner was only possible online. Now, experienced online daters that I have interviewed for my research, one of the kind of key dating tips that they tend to provide is not to spend too much time chatting with someone before meeting up. And there are reasons for that. First of all, to make sure that they are who they say they are. And second of all, you can have very good compatibility online and then find that when you meet, there's no chemistry, there's no connection, it's not there. So rather than spend a lot of time chatting, the advice is always to sort of, you know, suss them out a little bit, see if there's some sort of possibility for good conversation, but then meet quickly so that you don't waste a lot of time messaging someone who ultimately is quite unsuitable. Now, obviously, lockdown uh, prevented that from happening. So we did see a lot more online chatting and video dates. And I think as well, during the pandemic, it wasn't a normal context for dating. So normally people would be able to check things around compatibility, like they both enjoy going out a lot, but everyone was forced to stay home, obviously. So in a sense, they weren't really seeing each other in a kind of naturalistic kind of context. And sometimes that incompatibility wasn't apparent for quite some time. So it's possible that it kind of prolonged relationships that maybe wouldn't have started or would have ended rather more quickly. We also saw that it kind of accelerated some relationships. So because of the lockdown rules, some couples moved in together very quickly in a way that they definitely wouldn't have otherwise, but they, you know, kind of bubbled up very, very quickly. So the other thing that I found was that there was, for a lot of people, I think, a greater interest in being in a relationship in general, that the pandemic meant they had to kind of pause certain parts of their life and that perhaps caused a kind of revaluation, made them think about what was important. And that, you know, because of the loneliness of the pandemic that many people experienced, having a partner became, you know, particularly uh, desirable at that time. And so stimulated this kind of greater interest in relationships. So I think, you know, the pandemic had a big impact actually in all sorts of complex ways some of which were obviously particularly conducive to online romance fraud, uh, which the other speakers have highlighted, you know, increased during this particular time. And I think it was a kind of perfect storm of factors that really lent itself to this uh, kind of exploitation. And David's research concentrates on heterosexual relationships, but I just wondered if, is there a difference, uh, do you think, in, in how crimes of this type might affect LGBT plus people? Yeah, I think that's a really important question to address. Now, we know that historically, lesbian, gay, bi, trans, queer people have been vulnerable to blackmail because of not being out. And although we live in a much more accepting society nowadays, at least in some parts of the globe, not everyone realises that that's still a problem for people who are not out to their families or communities, for example. So I've interviewed people who are in long-term committed partnerships but either they or their partner is not out to immediate family, for instance. So that's a secret that they have to keep. And then they conduct their relationship in a way that preserves that secrecy in some parts of their lives, whether they're not out at work, they're not out to their partner's family, you know, that sort of thing. So in terms of romance fraud, I think that's one way in which they could be exploited through the threat of being outed. We've also seen reports of homophobic hate crimes and transphobic hate crimes really increase dramatically in recent years. So, you know, we know that there's still a context in which people have, are, are very vulnerable. 
There's something that's often discussed in relation to the digital realm and sexual harassment is heterosexual women receiving unsolicited dick pics, for example, in ways that are sexually harassing. I think what people don't realize, and it's one of the things that I'm writing about at the moment in relation to my own research, is that lesbians and queer women get a lot of harassment by straight men or straight couples approaching them online, uh, for example, who want a threesome. So one participant I interviewed who identified as lesbian turned up for a, a date with a woman she'd met online who had you know, absolutely reassured her she was a lesbian. She was there to meet her for a one-on-one date. And then she turned up and it was a woman who brought her boyfriend along. And these kinds of experiences can be deeply distressing and very scary, even though they're meeting in a public space like a cafe. We've also seen a growth in technologically mediated harm, such as revenge porn, for want of a better term. And the impact of that on victims is horrific and it's a difficult crime to address. And again, it's something that all people, regardless of their sexual identity, are vulnerable to. David Gillies, can you talk to us about how useful research like this is to you? Yeah, Chris, I mean, crime is constantly changing and therefore, you know, policing research needs to constantly evolve with the changing in the crime patterns, you know, if we're to stand any chance of, you know, fighting crime. And it's really useful to have some evidence-based outcomes which then provide a solid platform of credibility upon which, you know, we, the police, can then sort of confidently progress with sort of longer-term practical solutions or even interventions, especially knowing that they've been researched and tested, measured, and we've got a sort of measurable outcome we can sort of, we can look to achieve such collaborations are really looked at as the way forward. So, David, can research like this help you to maybe argue for more resources in a particular area or to target different areas of behaviour or different parts of the internet? Absolutely. We can inform the senior officers and bid them for extra resources, extra funding, because it is actually being proven that if we do this, we can then have an impact on crime in that area. David, Will Hill, back to you. Your research came to some conclusions about what police and others can do in response to crimes like this. Can you talk us through those a bit? First of all, I just wanted to say thank you so much for organizing this chat. I don't know if those who listen to it later on will enjoy it as much as I'm doing it right now, but I'm learning a lot both from the other David and, and Roisin. So thank you so much for organizing it and having me around. It's really good experience to learn from others, both in research and practice. David was mentioning before, it's very important to have strong evidence base, but also to evaluate these evidence-based practices to see if they actually work. And for that, we need accurate data. We need good data that reflects real-world patterns that will allow us to better understand the nature of crime, but also later on to develop good programs for crime prevention and evaluate those programs. David pointed towards something very, very important before, is that we have a very low crime reporting rate, especially related to cyber-enabled fraud. So it's very important to encourage victims to report crime to the police, to report crime to action fraud, to have data that is more accurate to fully understand the extent of the problem. For that, we need awareness campaigns. 
that let victims know what to do when they are victimized, but also what to do when they have already been victimized to stop the victimization, to involve law enforcement agencies in the investigation early on so uh, hopefully they can recover some, if not all of the money they have lost, and then start the investigation. From a policing point of view, strength and cross-jurisdictional collaborations, because again, offenders and victims are very often not in the same jurisdiction. Often they are in different countries, if not different continents. So strength and collaborations across police agencies to undertake the investigation and, if possible, prosecute offenders and give the money back to victims. It's also very important to develop peer support groups like the one that David has put together in Essex, an amazing practice, also develop partnership with NGOs, educational institutions, and so on and so forth to ensure that those that have suffered this type of incidents can talk to others that have gone through similar experiences and help them overcome this victimization traumatic experience. And last but not least, I think it's probably one of the most important ones, establish ongoing collaborations with dating sites. They have loads of data. We know they have loads of data because they have flagging systems and that indicate them that some profiles in online sites are more likely to be related to romance fraud than others. And they could be sharing this data, for instance, with law enforcement agencies. So one of the policy recommendations we post, but again, this policy recommendation and all others that we are making will need to be evaluated later on in the future if they are put into practice, is to develop public-private partnership between law enforcement agencies, government, and online dating sites to share intelligence, share data, and therefore develop better evidence-informed practices and evaluations of those practices in the future. Great. Okay, so there's quite a lot of work to do in terms of prevention as well. David Gillies, if I can come to you again. So what can government do in terms of policy or changing laws or bringing in new laws? Are there ways that your work is restricted, which new legislation could help with? I know that the Home Office are seriously looking at the problem of fraud. We're looking at now over 40% of all crime is fraud related. So out of all crime that's committed, 40% of all crime is fraud or cyber enabled. So the government already know that. They already know the huge losses. They are doing a lot of work behind the scenes. And with the new online safety policy that's just come in, a lot of work has been done with with the banks uh, that a lot of people actually don't see at the minute to protect people's money. They begin the two-factor identification. So there are all these factors that are coming in at the minute. So I think there's a lot that's actually going on to help protect people. So we've been talking about romance fraud, but we've been talking about intimacy in general. And Roisin, one of the things that you talked about was shame, and you touched on the issue of consent as well. I wanted to ask you first, are we a society which doesn't talk enough about intimacy and emotion? And is that playing a role here, do you think? Well, in terms of consent, I definitely think there needs to be a lot more education around consent. And I think this should be an intrinsic part of sexuality and relationships education, a kind of earlier age. 
I think that might help a bit around something like online romance fraud if people are just better at asserting boundaries around certain things. In terms of intimacy, I think that's an interesting thing to contemplate in relation to the pandemic, when I think it did cause people to evaluate the existing relationships that they had in their lives, any kind of gaps in intimacy, uh, the growth in loneliness that we witnessed during this kind of uniquely uh, challenging time. So I definitely think that there is a kind of space there that's been opened up for the possibility of more discussion and connection, it has to be said, around people experiencing that kind of personal vulnerability at that specific moment in time. And David Boyle-Hill, did you have any thoughts on that yourself? Yeah, I think I will tend to agree with Bryce in the it's always important to continue discussing issues around consent, improve education around those topics, and also as a society embrace more conversations around intimacy and emotion. I, however, from my side, I need to say I'm, I'm a strong defender of evidence-based practices. So I think that all those societal changes that we need to embrace and that are important in any case, like they don't need to be driven by changes in crime prevention, if we want them to actually have an impact in crime victimization and crime offending, we need to undertake evaluations, right? So I think each bit of money, each bit of public money that goes to educational programs need to go through evaluation to make sure it's delivering what it was intended to deliver. In any case, I am full on board about providing further edu- more education about consent, about intimacy, about education. If but we need to be able to evaluate whether this has an impact at all in crime prevention. So from my side, we need more data, we need better data, and this depends on everyone. This depends on victims, and we need to encourage them to report more. It depends on police forces developing good practices of crime recording and reporting and sharing with researchers and with society. And it also depends on researchers to make a good practice from existing data to know which prevention practices and policies are working better for crime reduction. I think we need to remember that out of all this data, there is a victim behind this, and it's that support that needs to be put in place. And David's quite right. You know, most of these cases come from abroad, so most of the fraudsters come from abroad, of which we have no jurisdiction at all with them. So a lot of work has to be done in the preventative side of it and the support. The challenges, again, from our side is, again, to change that perception, the blame and shame. But also what we found from running the peer support groups as well, which work really effectively, the victims also feel a void from ceasing their communication with the fraudster. Again, I think with David and Roisin, there's further research that needs to be done on that. You know, And society's judgmental, the telling of friends, the isolation, the loneliness. And again, I think there's a great deal of research that still needs to go in there to uh, shape the preventive work that we actually do with the police and all our external support agencies. My thanks to David Boyle-Hill, Roisin Ryan Flood and David Gillies. You can find out more about how the data from Understanding Society is changing practice and informing policy by visiting the website understandingsociety.ac.uk. This was a research podcast's production. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts.